Yes, here. Member Friedenbach. Here. Member Preston. Here. Member Walton. Here. Chair Williams. Okay, so we don't have quorum yet. Um, okay, so we'll just move on to the land acknowledgement for now um, until we have quorum. Okay, um, so we acknowledge that we are here on unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytu Shaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytu Shaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Um, can we move on to general public comment? Okay, and also vote. Well, we can't vote on excusing absences till um, Chair Williams is here. Okay, so um, we'll just move on to general public comment for now. Is there anybody um, in the audience who? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. And can I just make one note, because there's a lot of members of the public that were anticipating because of the discussion at the last meeting that the transitional age youth proposals were gonna be voted on, or that were gonna be on the agenda today, and they're not. And so um, folks that were here for that item should speak at public comment now, in general public comment. No, I think it's okay, go ahead. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Marnie Regan, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the division director at uh, Larkin Street Youth Services and also co-chair of HESPA and co-chair of the TAY subcommittee of HESPA. Um, yeah, I anticipated a, a motion being um, voted on to approve or to endorse um, the TAY spending plan that the TAY providers put together. Um, we put a lot of thought and intention and strategic planning um, into uh, our proposal to allocate and program the unprogrammed OCO funds uh, in Tay housing. Um, so our plan um, gets more youth off the street and into housing, and it keeps more youth housed for much longer uh, while they um, come to all of our provider services to um, get wraparound services so they become employed and stabilized and employed and in school and ready to take on their rent in a couple years. Um, uh, there's a higher, um, higher proportion of unhoused youth are youth of color and queer youth, um, and they experience um, much more uh, negative health disparities from remaining on the streets and trying to stabilize. Um, so again, a lot of thought has gone into how we would um, spend down the acquisition plan, the acquisition funds, the ongoing funds to support those acquisi acquisitions, um, and the uh, rapid rehousing slots. Um, so thank you for your consideration. Thank you. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001. And enter access code 26640572213. Then press pound and then pound again. 
If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. At this time, uh, moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? We have two public comments. We have two people in queue for public comment. Hi, this is Sherilyn Adams, Executive Director at Larkin Street Youth Services. And I'm just calling in to sort of associate my comments with Marnie's comments about all of the work the TAPE providers have done to work together to create um, a plan that would allow for the allocation, a uh, recommended plan for how to allocate the funding available through Prop C to serve um, young people experiencing homelessness in our city. And I'm saddened that it is not on the agenda um, and would just really like to elevate the needs of young people and the continued sort of delay that we're experiencing in having a plan and a strategy and funding allocated allocation plan to be able to meet their needs. So I'm hoping that this will come on to the agenda in November and just in the meantime, wanna really uplift the importance of us as a city addressing the needs of our very extremely vulnerable young people who are living outside and need, uh, need us to continue to work together to make this plan and have, a, have an opportunity to make recommendations from the TAPE providers. Thanks so much. Um, Ivy, I'm going to actually call the meeting to order because we have a quorum. Okay. Um, we do have one more caller in the queue. Oh, okay. Let's um, take it. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and unmute that caller. Hi. Good morning. This is Hope Kamer, Compass Family Services Chair of the HESPA Family Subcommittee. Just calling to echo my colleague's sentiment, um, share that we really hope the uh, crafted plan from our TAE colleagues can be voted on This is a really urgent need. Thanks so much. Moderator, do we have any other public comments in the queue? For the records, there are no additional phone public comments. All right, thank you so much, and thank you to our public commenters. Um, before we get started, I know that folks were expecting an item on the TAY recommendations. Um, Cynthia Najendra, I think from our last meeting, were convening TAY providers, and I was told they needed a little bit of time to finish that conversation, so apologies for any confusion um, with the agenda for today, but we will be taking up that item in November. Um, but with that, um, we are going to call this meeting to order of the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee, um, and we'll start with roll call. Member Cunningham-Denning, absent. Vice Chair D'Antonio. Yes, here. Member Friedenbach. Here. Member Preston. Here. Member Walton. Here. Chair Williams. Here. All right, so we do have quorum, and I believe we already read the, mm -hmm. we, did, we already read the land acknowledgement. Um, so we will, we've already done public comment as well, so we'll now go to the minutes uh, for September Oh, do we have any votes to excuse absences? Our lawyer. Do we need to do that in this meeting for? Or like someone resigned, right? No, I can like make if you that. Plan on not being here, oh, in the future. Yeah, for any future. I know the holidays are coming up. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone has stuff no? coming up. Okay. Cool. Thanks, 
Awesome, so we will keep it moving to item three, which is approval of minutes. Is there a motion to approve? Motion to approve. Okay, so moved by Vice Chair D'Antonio. Is there a second? Second. All right, seconded by? Bonnie Preston. Member, <laughs> member Preston. Member Preston, <laughs> getting all the names. Um, all right, so we'll take it to roll. Okay, uh, Vice Chair D'Antonio? Yes. Oh. Apologies, we have to do public comment first before oh. the approval of the minutes. Um, so members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this agenda item in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to pr provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655. 0001, enter access code 26640572213, and then press pound, and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? For the records, there are no phone public comments. All right, thank you so much, Ivy. So we'll go to a roll call vote. Okay. Vice Chair D'Antonio? Yes. Member Friedenbach? Yes. Member Preston? Yes. Member Walton? Yes. Chair Williams? Yes. All right, so the minutes have been approved, and I believe now we're at item four. Um, we have... Um, a long-awaited item, uh, presentations um, on racial equity um, here in our city, and we're gonna have hear from um, the Office of Racial Equity, and I believe we're also gonna hear from Department of Public Health and um, HSH as well on their efforts for racial equity. So we'll start with uh, Sarah Singh, the Policy Director of the Office of Racial Equity. So welcome. Thank you, Chair Williams. Thank you to the committee for having me, and good morning to everybody in the room. Uh, my name is Sarah. I'm the policy director at the Office of Racial Equity for the city and county. Um, today, I'll just give you a little update on the background, how our office was created, um, some of what we've been doing, especially with HSH and DPH, um, and also some of the most relevant initiatives that we have coming up that I think uh, we would love to hear from your committee on. Um, so just as background, our vision is really to transform the systems in our city and county um, to support the collective liberation of all people, but especially our black, American Indian, um, and other people of color in this city. And I think that aligns very closely with um, the priorities and values that you as a committee have outlined for your fund um, to center racial equity and to close those disparities um, and homelessness in our city. Um, so we were created by legislation in 2019, um, and that legislation outlines exactly how we're supposed to work with the departments in this city um, and some of the projects that we have to carry out. Um, and the creation of our office and the mandate that we have is really the result of successful advocacy and organizing by our black city workers, our labor lead leaders, and community members. Um, so we just like to acknowledge that every time we talk about our office. So our legislative mandate, um, it includes many specific projects, and some of those are listed here. Um, I will note that 
The role of our office is to create a citywide racial equity framework, um, and we're doing this in two parts. So what we've done so far is what we call phase one, and that's really focused on our workforce, on our city employees. Phase two, which will be coming up, will be focused on public service delivery um, as well as contracting. And then based on the citywide racial equity framework, um, this is how we work with departments like DPH and HSH um, to align in align them in developing and implementing their specific racial equity action plans. Um, and this is where we have the pleasure and privilege of working with um, amazing teams um, like the folks who are here today. Um, we also do, on a case-by-case -case basis, do technical assistance, policy analysis for individual departments whenever they ask for it. Um, so at this point, uh, most departments, I would say about 50 departments and agencies in the city, finished their racial equity action plans in the end of 2020, early 2021. And so they've been implementing them for over two years now. Um, and what we have found is that every department and every agency, you know, we work with over 50 of them and there's... Um, we employ over 30,000 people in the city and we serve you know, almost a million. Um, and so what we think of as a cycle of learning for creating equity in the city isn't going to be one cycle, it's many cycles. Um, and we're working really closely to try to align departments and teams um, in amplifying their learnings and implementing the best practices that they've developed for themselves. Um, so last year, in 2022, um, as I mentioned, um, we were providing a lot of technical assistance to folks um, and trying to start to create this collaborative culture of learning with racial equity leaders. Um, and this year, uh, we're really focused on working with them to expedite phase one, which again is all about employee equity, closing disparities and hiring, promotions, pay, and so on for our staff. Um, but looking forward, as we prepare for the next year, um, we're also going to be working on a few other projects that are outlined in our legislation. Um, so many of these, like the Racial Equity Index, the Budget Equity Tool, um, the Race Ethnicity Data Standard, we've already drafted initial versions of and submitted to the Mayor and the Board of Supervisors. Um, but what we've heard from community is that there is a lot, a lot more work to do on these. And so in the next year, um, we're hoping to turn towards our phase two racial equity plans, um, starting to create a collaborative framework with all of our departments, um, committees such as yours and our community members, um, and figure out how to make these projects truly impactful for folks. So the racial equity index um, is meant to be a report card, that's what the legislation calls it, a report card on how our city is doing on key indicators for racial equity. So housing and homelessness um, is a key area of that index. Um, as we were developing the index though, and we had a lot of support from the controllers department on analyzing that data, we found that there wasn't one standard across departments and agencies in the city uh, for how to disaggregate race and ethnicity. So in the process of developing that index, we've also been working with Data SF um, to start to draft up what a data standard could look like for folks. Um, we also worked with departments um, to look at some tools for budget equity. Um, and we created two initial tools. One is 
for them to think through and reflect on the impacts of a specific budget request. Um, and the other is to start to think through, um, sometimes folks talk about, talk about zero-based budgets. Um, you know, those are often with the lens of efficiency. Um, and for us, the second budget equity tool that we created was about what would a zero-based budget look like in terms of racial equity and closing disparities. Um, so that was an exercise that almost all the departments and agencies went through just as a small test to lay out their full budget and start to connect those with some of their equity initiatives. Um, and then again, um, we're hoping to start to develop a phase two racial equity framework next year um, with all of our departments. Um, and stakeholders really focused on what service delivery equity should look like as well as contracting equity. And this is also where the controller's office has worked with us um, to put in some of those foundational software pieces um, and data gathering that we need to even start to look at contracting equity in this city. Um, so as, those, as we transition from phase one towards phase two in the next year, I think some of the key questions that we would have for you as a committee, as well as for um, many of our service providers and the folks in this room, are what have been your learnings on budget equity, especially given your responsibility to recommend allocations for almost half a billion dollars per year. And what are some practices that you would really recommend expanding across the city? What are some of the challenges that you have found um, thinking back to, you know, metrics and measuring impact, how would you like to use the citywide racial equity index? What data have you found in your work to be most helpful? And what data have you found to be missing and you would have really liked in your decision making? Um, knowing that also that in our mandate, we will be creating a citywide phase two racial equity framework. What are some specific topics or guidance that you would prioritize giving to departments? And in general, what are some other resources, learning spaces, or technical assistance that would be useful to you from our team? Um, and we're happy to come back um, later in the year uh, with updates on these specific projects and to have discussions about them. Um, or you're also welcome to reach out to our team at any time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I guess we can take questions after everyone um, presents. So we'll next hear from Anthony Bush, um, who's the Chief Equity Officer at HSH. Welcome, good morning. Someone might help to help me with the uh, mode. Yeah, I don't want to mess it up. So. I, I present more will be good, but. I can just do regular one, it's fine, yeah. All right, good morning, folks. Tech is always my favorite thing. Um, so good morning, I'm uh, Anthony Bush. I am the uh, Chief Equity Officer with HSH. I'm happy to be with you all, I'm also the first in my role. We are a new uh, department or team division within HSH, so very, very excited. 
Uh, on the board, you have my team with me, uh, Anjali Remy. Um, and Andrew, Anjali really handles our uh, racial equity trainings that we work through with our entire staff. And then Andrew helps support our data equity, which is still kind of getting going. Um, so not a lot of things to share right there as far as our data equity programs, but um, just wanted to give you an introduction to our office as we are finally fully formed. Um, so a lot of what I'll be talking about is the ways in which the Home by the Bay plan, which is Mayor Breed's plan to um, reduce homelessness by 2028, um, is informed through the collaboration and intentionality through equity. Um, so obviously it was developed between 2022 and 2023, um, and it was published early this year with the idea that we would be able to reduce um, homelessness targeting very key areas and then also having differentiated strategies to support marginalized communities from the overrepresentation of homelessness based upon or in contrast with their uh, you know, SF-based population. Um, some of the tools that were kind of engaged or strategies was to ensure that we were partnering with those with lived experience to really inform how we ensure uh, that we're meeting the needs of those community members as well as community um, liaisons who gave their expertise to help us design and implement strategy that would then later help us reach those goals. Um, in reference to uh, the reflects broad-based input, just making sure that we were really soliciting feedback from community providers, providers national experts, as well as some um, consultants, this body, as well as other bodies that we um, engage with the Strategic Framework Advisory Committee um, and the local homeless coordinating board, just to ensure that there was a clear alignment between each of those bodies to inform the larger strategy. Um, it's a citywide scope, so there'll be also efforts from other city departments that will help kind of lift some of the work of this plan. Um, and then the system modeling and that data piece, right, really is going to be informed by the baselines that are set um, at the end of this current fiscal year. In reference to the vision of equity for San Francisco, um, really believing that homelessness should be a one-time thing and that no one um, is recidivized through that system. But also I think that it's really important to understand that we are using differentiated strategies for various communities, right? What a black person or a black family might need to end their homelessness may be different from that of their Latinx families, maybe different from that of who's on the binary spectrum or, or is gender affirming. And so thinking through really targeted efforts to ensure that we're soliciting, excuse me, uh, feedback from each of these constituencies as well as developing um, kind of an integrated plan that works to uh, end and meet the goal of ending homelessness for these communities. Um, and then why equity matters. Um, we know that the overrepresentation of people in color, uh, people of color in San Francisco um, in the homelessness system is vastly different than that of their actual population size. And you have the data lumped here in terms of BIPOC, but no, by no means does that mean that you know they're all representative. We know 38% of the homeless population is black, but they only make up 6% of the San Francisco population. We also know there's a rise in Latinx homelessness from the 2021 pick count data. I'm seeing 15%, and there's also a mass influx of different migrant communities coming um, to San Francisco as by way of it being a sanctuary city, right? And so thinking around how to develop a specifically targeted equity lens means that each of these communities will need different things, right? But it's important to, I think, to, to, to understand um, that the overall representation is really informed by systems of oppressions and kind of the intentional design uh, of oppression within this country. So the larger five goals for the Home by the Bay plan um, is decreasing homelessness. Um, and really where we're targeting goal two is really thinking around those metrics that need to be set um, with respect to the different marginalized communities. So not just using a racial equity lens, but actually using an intersectional justice lens so that we can ensure that gender equity, disability, and other isms are really folded into that effort in reference to you know how do we really uphold and, and support these communities um, by way of 
by way of leveraging equity. I'm gonna go a little bit now into kind of the internal approach of racial equity within the department because I think we're still building the infrastructure of the cross collaboration that would kind of inform the external constituencies of this. Um, but I think it's important to kind of understand the thought partnership behind why our office does what we do internally to then inform our external strategy, if that makes sense. Um, and so advancing racial equity and housing justice is probably the premier way in which we engage all of our HSH staff to ensure that there's a baseline of cultural competency or cultural humility or racial equity fluency, pick your term, um, but really getting an understanding of kind of the systemic reasons as to why this current state of homelessness exists as it does today and the reasons why there's overrepresentations of marginalized communities within those um, within those uh, national datas, right? Um, and so in partnership with Sarah and the Office of Racial Equity, um, we were given and tasked with the Racial Equity Action Plan, really in two parts, um, but given the nature of serving homelessness, we thought that it would be really intentional to have our internal strategy and our external strategy kind of happen side by side. Um, but the first of which was just making sure that we're embedding equity within our programs, um, responding to the rise in Latinx homelessness, responding to um, the trans community and trying to reach a, a function zero by 2027. Um, the BIPOC capacity building efforts, which I'll go into a little bit more detail um, later into the presentation. Um, and then really just making sure that there is a comprehensive nature to the way that our equity office collaborates with each division within HSH to ensure that it's not just a siloed um, one-off uh, team, but really kind of baked into the intentional strategy of HSH altogether. And then of course, there's different internal needs for our HSH staff um, with respect to hiring, retention, promotion, um, racial equity training, and other kind of matters as far as mediation and supervisory dynamics with, within their teams. Um, so our first area of big success is that we are the first city department, I believe, don't quote me on that, mm -hmm. but I believe we're the first city department to leverage our own internal racial equity trainings, the scope of which is really focused on systemic and interpersonal racism, um, interpersonal racism when it, with respect to our internal constituencies and our external constituencies, and then individual racism, really understanding how internalized uh, oppression um, manifests within um, within ourselves, but also then how those realities inform our, our realities uh, externally as well, right? So uh, we've just, we are currently undergoing our third racial equity training in the series, our fourth of which will be in February. Um, and I'm very proud to say that all of our staff have been trained in this regard, um, led largely by myself and, and Angeli Remy, who is our equity officer, but really just giving our, our, our staff a baseline of understanding kind of the systemic reasons as to why homelessness exists as it does today, and then thinking around the different challenges um, that impact our community-based partners, right? So how is an organization that is led by maybe someone of color um, better or maybe negatively impacted by uh, the realities of budgets, capacity, infrastructure with respect or in counterpart to their white-led counterparts, right? And so thinking around some of the interpersonal dynamics, the systemic dynamics that inform those disparities and then really targeting strategies to uplift that, right? Eventually, once we wrap this uh, internal racial equity training, that will be something that we then partner with our community-based organizations externally. And rather than doing a universalized approach, we really think it's important that we target the needs of each organization. So a white-led organization may need something different than that of their, their black counterparts, right? And so really ensuring that there's kind of differentiated tracks uh, within our racial equity training to ensure that everyone is still walking away with the same language and vocabulary, but also having differentiated approaches to the supports that they might need on all staff facing levels and, and their uh, clients as well. 
Um, and so this is just kind of speaking to that. This is, I'm not gonna go you know, exhaustive into this, but I think the idea is that once we really build a framework for understanding various isms at the systemic, institutional, interpersonal, and then internalized levels, we then can tackle that same scope and sequence for every other ism, right? So next year we could go into gender identity and homophobia, we can go into misogyny and, and sexism and things like that, and really thinking around how to target each ism from that framework. Uh, in reference to the coordinated entry redesign, um, we've been getting a lot of data to show that the um, the people who are getting through our system from the coordinated entry assessment um, are not being uh, supported in the same ways. Um, and so really thinking around how do we conduct listening sessions, uh, monthly shelter meetings, and think about the strategy to better support those that were missing in the system. I think, if I may speak freely, um, the assessment is not designed to support everyone in the same way. And equity really means that people are getting what they need and their communities are getting what they need. And that may not be a universalized approach, right? And so finding the areas and the gaps of how the assessment is missing certain community members and then really collaborating with programs um, and those in the housing space to really ensure that we are better uh, equipping that, that assessment to really support those folks uh, who, are, who are getting missed by the system. And then we're doing a lot <laughs> with just the three of us, um, but I think it's really important to kind of ground our external and internal approaches and, and kind of how those two things are happening side by side. As uh, Sarah from the Office of Racial Equity spoke to, there, the intentional design for the Racial Equity Action Plan was actually a phase one approach, which would be our internal strategy, and then a phase two's approach, which would be our external strategy. Given that homelessness is a external issue, we don't really have the luxury of waiting for the phase two. Um, and so we've been partnering with them to think around how could we do both simultaneously without over-indexing our strategies to really pri provide prioritization um, within how we engage in racial equity work. Um, so a lot of our external work is I think where we'll speak to because I know the oversight committee here um, for our city, our home is really more focused on that. But there are elements of what we're doing internally that I'll kind of quickly surface towards the end of our presentation. Um, so the BIPOC equity fund was initially uh, named as the Black-led equity fund. It had to be changed due to recent legislation by the Supreme Court um, with respect to affirmative action. Um, but it really is designed to ensure that uh, various organizations of color are getting the infrastructure and support they need. What we heard from our community listening sessions in uh, the summer of earlier this year is that when it comes to black-led organizations, um, brown-led organizations, indigenous-led organizations, there doesn't seem to be the same level of infrastructure or awareness into how our systems are working, right? And so with this one-time funding of $900,000 that has pretty much been accumulated over the last three years, um, we're really giving an opportunity for those um, organizations that are led by people of color to really build their infrastructure. Unfortunately, this is just one-time money. Um, we would hope that it can continue to keep going so if you can help us with that <laughs> uh, outreach, we would love that. But really making sure that um, emerging CBOs and also current city partners really have a better leverage to, to better support their communities, right? We know that if certain communities are working with populations more specifically and intentionally, then those are the organizations that should be really be uplifted when centering certain communities, right? And so this fund um, has 
Um, gone live, we've had the applications closed and we have about eight organizations that we're ready to award uh, around $900,000. If there's any money that's retained from that, we'll kind of think around the ongoing strategy of how to ensure um, that we can really better support those organizations moving forward. Um, but our fund disbursement um, is looking to, to start in uh, November and then hopefully all funds will be dispersed by, by uh, December. Um, and we're really excited about that because I don't have anyone in programs on my team, so we've been learning from the ground up. I was formerly a teacher. Um, so this is all kind of new to me, but still very, very exciting to partner with those organizations. Um, and then something else that's on our docket is the Entrance Homelessness Initiative. Uh, for those that I don't know, this is a citywide effort to really ensure that we're reaching a functional zero for uh, the TGNCI popula population or the trans, gender non-conforming, and, and, and intersex uh, uh, community. And the reason why we think we can reach functional zero is because this is a very small population. Similar to what you're seeing with veterans and other um, municipalities across the country, we think that with targeted comprehensive approaches and supports that we can actually reach functional zero, um, ideally by 2027, although um, you know, that may take a little bit longer given some of the funding cuts that we're seeing uh, coming down the pike. Um, but the major priorities of, of this work is kind of a comprehensive nature to support this community. When thinking around kind of the 10 priority areas that we would work to kind of prioritize ending trans homelessness, um, you can see those kind of outlined, outlined in that table. Um, I won't go too deep into that, but a lot of what the equity office is holding is additional training focused on TGNCI populations for community-based providers. Again, something that will replicate for a racial equity approach. Um, and then I think really supporting um, TGNCI uh, providers, right, and thinking around how to build the infrastructure of their teams while also thinking through how to really support um, service providers and people who identify within that community to kind of seek out uh, career laddering within that sector of work to continue uh, the mission to, to work and support this community. Um, and so, what, again, what, the, um, what largely is being led by my team uh, and the equity office, but more specifically, Angeli Remy, is Affirming Trans Access to Housing Symposium. It is a symposium made up of all of our providers that will go through the same curriculum over the course of a year. We already have three of those um, symposiums sold out, so we're very, very excited for this. But this is specifically provider-facing, right? So ensuring that people who are serving TGNCI populations, even if it's just one, have a baseline level of fluency to understand their needs and are more intentional around the way that they deliver their services. And then another po uh, opportunity is um, professional pathways, specifically for TGNCI service providers, right? So thinking around how do we equip and kind of uh, support the professional development of those community members to ensure that they have uh, an, a better opportunity to seek leadership positions within their organizations or um, even across the city. Um, this is some of our tracking and reference to what we've been able to do. Uh, the equity office is still kind of project managing the Antrans Homelessness um, Initiative, but I think what's really important is that we are not the implementer of each of those work streams, right? And so thinking through how do we liaise between each of our uh, city departments while also ensuring that there is really the assignments um, that, are, that are being offered to, to the divisions of labor that will seek to carry out that work. Um, I will not go into this too much more, but just kind of why this is an important issue. And again, I think it's with respect to maybe uh, the TGNCI uh, community, it's also important to think through the intersectional lens. A white trans woman going through homelessness is having vastly different experiences than a black trans woman, right? And so even though um, we are centering, centering maybe gender equity within this work, the racial equity is always at the core of everything that we do to ensure there's that intersectional lens really informing how to uplift um, all community members. 
Um, and then just the last portion of this, because I know this is kind of going long, but I think in reference to how equity is really partnering with HR is super important. Often in workspaces, equity is seen as like the boogeyman and gonna try to up, up, um, upend systems, right? That, that may be something that's scary. But I think it's important to understand that the systems uh, that are kind of embedded in institutions are not designed for people of color to succeed. Uh, when you think about the qualifiers of what it meant to be a citizen in this country, you had to be white, Anglo-Saxon, male, and land-owning. So that is classism, um, sexism, racism, and all, many other isms at play there. And so when thinking around how we partner with um, HR, it's really thinking around a partner collaboration, right? What is HR's lens to support and kind of understand the legalities and the privacy that a, that a HR, or sorry, a staffer um, is, is allotted to, but also how do we work then with HR to really partner and think about the mediation, um, the long-term life cycle of an employee, and also the sustainability of what someone is taking on, right? That also includes development, professional development, and also career ladding opportunities. So hiring people of color is not enough. How do you keep them there? and make sure that they also have promotional pathways um, at the same level as their white counterparts, right? And so we're really excited about this. Melanie Lehman, who is our HR director, has been really integral in ensuring that this partnership is very clear, but also that we're learning as we go of how to be very intentional so as not to cross HR boundaries, but also really make sure that there's an intentional way to center equity in a more diligent way. Um, and then we do diversity celebrations each month, um, centering different uh, community members who are specifically working in the homeless space to then provide that learning onto our staff. So this is something that's really excited. We actually just had one yesterday with these amazing people on the screen. Um, and again, largely led by Angeli Remy, who's our equity office. She's fantastic, and I could not do this work without her. Um, and then, as Sarah spoke earlier, as far as the racial equity uh, action plan, you know, we are on track for many, many initiatives, um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And so hoping that as we continue to prioritize, we have the stabilized infrastructure to sustain the work that we're currently doing, but then also building upon that. Um, we are at the citywide table helping with some other racial equity work as far as the cultural humility trainings and advising on how we can best partner to build that framework for a city network. And that's my time. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so our last presentation, and then um, we'll open up to the committee for comments, is uh, Jessica Brown, who's the BHS Equity Lead, and Kelly Kirkpatrick, Director of Administration and Operations, to talk to us about Mental Health SF at DPH. So good morning and welcome. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having us here. Um, Pleasure to see you all. Um, I'm Jessica Brown. My name is, I, I am the director of the Office of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion and the Mental Health Services Act for our Behavioral Health Services. So we are a, a subdivision of the overall DPH um, equity initiative. So we have our Office of Health Equity that works closely with the HRC and HSH, and then they oversee our work as a behavioral health division. So just want to make sure that I clarify that I am representing behavioral health services and DPH, but not all of DPH and their equity work. Okay, thank you. Uh -oh. Okay. 
and I too, technology is a challenge at times. Okay, just wanted to give you all just a landscape of, um, of San Francisco and our services as BHS. Um, so we have an extremely diverse population of clients that we serve, um, uh, mostly making up uh, clients of color um, that, extreme, that are facing extreme crisis in mental health and substance use. So a lot of our efforts focus on population-focused, culturally responsive services in order to serve the needs of our, of our BIPOC community. Community, particularly our, our communities of color. Um, black African Americans have uh, four times the rate of overdose deaths um, than white San Franciscans. Um, and also we saw a 33% th uh, in citywide increase in suicide attempts. Um, and this is also a result of the impacts of COVID. So to post-COVID, our services have extremely increased uh, because of the high need for mental health and substance use services. Um, so at Behavioral Health, we offer a full range of specialty, specialty behavioral health services um, that focus on, again, a culturally diverse uh, a population and network of communities. Um, we look at different behavioral health programs, private psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists. Uh, we also are focused on mental health and substance use, and we offer a holistic approach to mental health services. So not only do our clients have access to behavioral health and out outpatient and, and intensive case management, but we also offer vocational training, um, housing as well, uh, peer support services, and again, population-focused mental health services. So our mission um, and vision is really to be able to provide um, all San Franciscans with um, the experience of mental health, emotional well-being, and to participate in meaningful community um, across the lifespan of generations. Also, to to really look at how to provide equitable, equitable and effective substance use and mental health services um, that promote behavioral health and well-being for all San Francisco. San Franciscans. So some of our goals include um, improved access into the effectiveness of mental health and substance use and recovery services, increased public awareness, um, and also how to get help for mental health and substance use challenges, and expand uh, proactive uh, and low threshold interventions to reduce um, risky or vulnerable behavior. Um, so with that, we have very um, different funding components uh, for behavioral health. Uh, we have the Mental Health Services Act, which was enacted in, back in 2005. This was a, a state law that was passed in California that allocates 1% of, um, that taxes 1% of those income over a million dollars to be allocated to mental health services. So with the Mental Health Services Act, our role as a county is to provide innovative, culturally responsive mental health services that are not necessarily tied to some of the requirements of Medi-Cal dollars. So we're able to be a lot more flexible, and that's, that's, the, that's the funding that I oversee. So each year we get about anywhere between 32 to $60 million a year to be able to provide uh, innovative mental health services. So um, with the Mental Health Services Act, we have five funding categories. One of them is community services and support, um, our innovation uh, funding category, prevention and early intervention, workforce and education and development, and capacity facilities and technology needs. Um, with San Francisco, San Francisco, because of our unique needs, we actually divvied up the five uh, state funding categories into seven categories because we wanted to be able to provide housing, vocational services, and peer support services. Again, having that holistic approach to uh, addressing clients' needs. Okay. 
Um, so with that, uh, we have our Office of um, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, which has been around technically since 2017. It used to be the Culturally Competency Office, and then it changed into the Office of uh, social justice, multicultural <laughs> education, and justice, and now and then it went to equity and workforce, and now it is je our Jedi team. So we've had a, a few different iterations of it. Um, because of the innovation work that MHSA offers and the budget behind um, a lot of the innovative services that we provide, uh, we decided to merge those departments together because their mission and values actually align very well together. And so at the, Justice, at the Jedi slash MHSA um, department, we really look into leading with race and prioritizing intersectionality, um, which includes sex, gender, sexual orientation, age, class, nationality, language, and ability. Um, and we really work with um, trying to develop our entire system of care to be an anti-racist, uh, trauma-informed, and trauma-healing multicultural um, uh, organization. So our equity work does not just um, live in the JEDI team, but we have, um, over the last three years, have uh, put forth a bunch of efforts to include it across all of behavioral health systems. Um, so this is just a couple of our programs that we have and the clients that we serve under the Mental Health slash, uh, Services Act slash the JEDI team. We have 15 population uh, focus programs. We also offer full service partnerships, which are very similar to in case, intensive case management services, um, but they provide, again, more of a holistic approach to looking at the client's needs and including peers and family into a client's recovery. Um, also, peer support programs, uh, our workforce development, vocational programs, and we have our rec uh, recovery and orient uh, oriented uh, treatment programs, which are basically our ICMs, um, our mental health promotion and early intervention, again, housing. We work very closely with HSH on providing some housing units for our clients, and also, again, um, capital facilities, which helps with, again, renovating some of our clinics um, and providing more of a, a welcoming space for our outpatient clinics as well. And then we have our innovations programs. And these innovation programs are uh, state-approved pilot programs where we can look into some gaps in our system and what clients we can uh, be able to serve. And I'll get into some of those programs in just a moment. Um, so these are just our commitments. I won't read all of them, but again, our commitment with the merging of our MHSA department and budget and the JEDI team is to always operate with the lens of racial equity. Again, to ensure that we are providing services throughout all of our behavioral health systems of care with an equity lens that are serving the clients in the most need. Again, we, we look at um, how to get a, a client from recovery to wellness, so providing, again, a holistic approach to that, again, with an equity lens. And that's our commitment as the, the JEDI team. I don't have an org chart, but we are a 14-staff a, a section. Again, we're not new. We just have evolved, and we were able um, to allocate positions and time to um, the JEDI team under the Mental Health Services Act because the work is very similar. Okay. Uh, so some of our accomplishments uh, since we've merged together is that our JEDI team actually consists of our Mental Health Services Act team, our trauma-informed systems, uh, staff wellness and workforce development and training. So we have a, a combined approach, again, to 
putting forth the equity work at all levels within BHS. Uh, so some of our um, accomplishments over the years have been we've been able to continue um, and expand our funding for our existing population-focused programs. That includes the Native American Health Center, RAMS, uh, API Collaborative, um, and also to um, looking at our Black African American Community Health and Wellness Initiatives and being able to add more funding to those programs, including adding um, uh, newer programs to our, um, our population-focused uh, uh, interventions. We also developed a culturally responsive um, innovation project, which we are um, applying evidence-based and non-evidence-based mental health interventions for black African-American, uh, adult, older adult, and Tay uh, with our civil service clinics. So we have four civil service clinics that will be testing out interventions over the next couple of years um, to see um, how lived experience, cultural value, discussing race and racism, and also um, using peer, a peer model framework will impact the linkage and retention of our black African-American clients into our specialty uh, services. So that has actually launched, is at uh, OMI South of Market Mission Mental Health Alternatives Program um, and um, our Tay Clinic. Our Tay Clinic is currently offering hip hop groups um, to uh, use hip hop therapy, therapy as an approach to, um, again, incorporate lived experience and cultural relevance into our mental health practices. Um, we also have, again, uh, with the results of um, uh, COVID and just seeing our overdose uh, substance use challenges in the city have expanded overdose prevention interventions by um, developing the Office of Behavior, Population Behavioral Health, which focuses on uh, overdose prevention efforts. Um, and also, too, we have been uh, really looking into different hiring initiatives, including adding lived experience as a desired qualification for hiring clinicians as well. Uh, that has been very effective in us being able to um, hire clinicians that have, again, lived experience um, or experience serving clients of certain different populations. Um, in addition, we've been uh, building the capacity of our executive team and our cabinet leadership team uh, to build their capacity in racial equity um, and anti-blackness foundation, foundational work um, while integrating equity principles throughout all of BHS, um, increasing support for our internships, peer support and vocational programs, and expanding our FSP and ICM services. Okay, so some of our key initiatives. So as of May 2023, we launched a 16-week um, anti-racist fellowship with uh, our executive and cabinet members. This fellowship was hosted by um, Robin D'Angelo and Dante King, where they went over foundational um, uh, uh, foundational um, historical knowledge of race and racism in this country with our executive leadership team. They also went over different ways to implement um, equity strategies within our workforce and the ways that we operate our systems of care. And so we have just wrapped up that, that 16 week leadership uh, fellowship and all of our cabinet members participated in it despite their busy schedules. Um, we'll be launching the second cohort in uh, uh, February of 2024. The other thing is that we actually um, expanded our equity services again. We awarded a $6 million per year RFP to four of our CBOs, uh, Rafiki, Rams, Homeless Children Network, and the UCSF Embrace Program. And this uh, amount of funding is going towards providing mental health services uh, for black um, birthing people going through pre and postpartum. Um, so it, again, be able to provide equity-based, cultural relevance, uh, mental health services during the birthing 
same stages. Um, in addition, we also, again, we, we, as I mentioned earlier, we had launched in June our uh, culturally responsive program at our four civil service clinics. Um, and then we also partnered with the Human Rights Commission on the, on the Universal Talk Therapy, where they're offering um, uh, mental health support for black, black communities within San Francisco. Okay. Um, other other um, programs that we support, um, this is just the list of the different ones that we have um, that are addressing um, and providing culturally congruent um, initiatives uh, to address racial disparities across all of our systems of care. Um, some of them are our Kumba Peer Fellowship. Again, I mentioned RAM's API Collaborative, where we provided um, uh, a, a peer support uh, navigation services for our Chinatown North Beach clinics, for our Vietnamese, uh, Cantonese, and Mandarin-speaking clients. Um, also to, again, funding Gender Health SF and their initiatives to serve um, LGBTQIA plus communities. Uh, and then also to looking at Curry Senior Center, which provides um, uh, services for isolated adults and se uh, isolated seniors. Um, okay, so one of our goals is again our focus in this these next couple of years and starting year will really to be to reduce uh, f fatal overdose disparities among Black African Americans by 30 percent by 2025. Um, the overdose death rates among Black African Americans is more than five times higher than the citywide rate. Um, Black African Americans uh, represent just six percent of the population in San Francisco, but 28 percent of the preliminary overdose deaths in in 2023. And so our partner, our, um, our goal is to focus primarily on housing and also overdose prevention, um, partnering with whole person care programs um, and uh, street medicine and healthcare services and shelters and permanent supportive housing on overdose prevention initiatives. Um, in addition, uh, also launching uh, seven completed and planned overdose prevention trainings uh, and working with our uh, faith-based communities as well to provide substance use and mental health trainings um, in order to be able to provide that support for their congregation. Okay. Other... Um, as far as our workforce, as you know, with um, um, clinicians, we've all had a statewide shortage, and so we've we really wrapped up our retention and recruitment efforts. Again, as I mentioned earlier, um, trying to put in desired qualifications of lived experiences, uh, either with mental health or uh, racial lived experiences. Um, again, also to um, developing and launching an unlearning racism curriculum for all of our uh, clinicians to build their capacity, along with the anti-racist training that our leadership team has participated in in the six, uh, 16 weeks. Um, we also, with our leadership, will be launching um, a 360 evaluation on the anti-racist framework, again, to assess and measure their capacity building as well. And we are launching a town hall um, November or December to communicate those results with our staff as well. Um, and then lastly, just again, making sure that we're partnering with our HR department on different hiring initiatives, such as um, a recruitment strategy to recruit clinicians of color, also to thinking about retention efforts on how to provide professional development <coughs> and also pathways in education uh, for any of our health workers that are interested in getting um, into uh, mental health services and being clinicians, um, and then providing internships where they are providing uh, uh, stipends to those that are newly graduated from behavioral health programs. 
And we also offer loan assumptions as well for our social workers and our MFTs um, to help with their loan forgiveness um, with the programs that they've graduated from. Okay, and that is it. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Really great presentations. Um, and I believe Director Kirkpatrick, did you wanna add to that? No, okay. Alrighty, so thank you so much for um, that great information. We're gonna open it up to the committee. Um, and I see um, Member Friedenbach. Yeah, I just have, um, uh, well, one question for for VPH, uh, also for uh, Ms. Brown. Um, uh, the Mental Health Services Act, I know in the past we had some issues with unspent dollars. Has that been addressed? Yes, thank you so much for that question. Uh, yes, our unspent dollars in the past have, um, they've been unspent because we've either allocated to services already, um, we always do salary savings as well, or we allocate for positions, and then we had a prudent reserve too. Mm. So making sure that in an economic downfall that we have enough in our prudent reserve and our internal reserve to maintain our programs. So with our unspent balance, what we did is we added those funds to our existing population focus programs because the need um, increased drastically during COVID. So during COVID, a lot of our population uh, programs uh, were seeing a lot more clients. They were also providing virtual um, services online um, and we wanted to be able to sustain those programs. So um, simultaneously, we had the DreamKeeper initiative um, that also was focusing on mental health services and we were able to um, expand funding for programs such as Mahat with um, Homeless Children Network. Um, and we used some of those unspent dollars from MHSA to sustain those types of programs. We also expanded our housing portfolio um, by acquiring a property with Conard House uh, at Washburn um, and being able to, again, expand tra transitional housing. And then in addition to, we also expanded our, again, our population focus programs by adding on Booker T. Washington as a new uh, program with MHSSA. So that's how we were able to use the unspent dollars. Okay. But I can confidently say that San Francisco has never had to revert any of their images day dollars because typically if we don't spend them down by a certain time, we have to give that funding back to the state. And we've been really good um, because of the need of allocating that funding to those programs. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for that question. Yeah. Vice Chair Antonio. Thank you. Um, the 200 units in the slide that you were talking about and these units, are they accessed are they accessed through coordinated entry? Are they all accessed through? Yes, yes. So we actually have 191 units that we partner with HSH through the coordinated entry services to get our clients into those permanent supportive housings. So we provide, um, we do have, the, the other units include our emergency stabilization units, so some of our hotels that we have. Okay. Um, and then we have our trans transitional housing with um, Conard House and also Booker T. Washington has some transitional uh, Tay housing as well. So it, it encompasses all of those. But our permanent supportive housing, we partner with HSH in the coordinated entry system. Okay, Yeah. thank you. That was my only question. Okay. All right, so any other committee members? I have questions for yeah. some of the other speakers. Okay. All right. Uh, go for it. Um, okay, great. Well, I, I had a question for Ms. Brown. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Ms. Brown? Thank you so much for sharing all the work you're doing. Um, I was curious in your coordination with um, human resources in the county, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about that? So when you want to hire people with um, certain qualifications, like you've said, 
do does your department actually get involved with the interviewing? How does that work? That are yeah. you just advising them and hoping they do it? I just want to hear about how the impact of what you want to have happen in human resources yeah. is actually happening. Yeah, thank you for that question. So we were able to launch a pilot of different equity initiatives um, alongside with the human, I'm sorry, um, HR, our HR department and our Office of Health Equity. Some of those um, initiatives were a recruitment list of different organizations that we can start posting job descriptions to and announcements to. Also to, as I mentioned, doing the lived experience as a desired qualification. We couldn't put, unfortunately there is no special condition for uh, African American, Native American, our LGBTQ communities. And so what we did was partner with our Office of Equity uh, um, with Dr. Ayanna Bidditt to figure out what language we can use for the desired qualifications. It's still a pilot. And so um, I think with that language, it's allowed us to have more of a diverse pool of candidates. Um, but you know, they do have to go through the exam process and they have to get um, screened by HR. And so, um, but we did see a lot of success on our uh, candidates that we were able to have apply and that got through into the interview. So for our culturally congruent program, we were able to hire um, clinicians with lived experience with black African-Americans. Um, and so it is a pilot program that we're hoping to launch throughout all of DPH, um, but HR was willing to partner with us first on seeing how this would look as a desired qualification. Yeah, I mean, do you see, um, do you have recommendations about how the county needs to change its hiring? Because, because you're working, you've got this office now of 14 people and part mm -hmm. of your job is hiring. Right. Or having impact on who is providing mental health in the city. And then we have this whole other structure yeah. for how people get hired in mm -hmm. the county. Is anyone looking at how these efforts are being coordinated? Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, with the Human Rights Commission and their Office of Racial Equity, they mandate every city department to have a racial equity action plan. So our department, Office of Health Equity, has a racial equity action plan, which includes HR initiatives. I believe HR also has their own plan as well. And so we work with the Office of Health, of Health Equity to also look at, okay, where are some um, uh, low representation of black African-American, Latinx uh, workforce in certain positions, and also where are some ways that we can actually retain staff as well. So we've been working with HR over the course of a couple of years to, again, like I said, pilot that the desired qualification and also change um, our add in some language about our commitment to racial equity um, in our job announcements as well as working with their recruiters on again which organizations that we can start um, uh, uh, posting job announcements too, like mm -hmm. looking at things like Cal State East Bay there so their I, just, I just have program. a question for you oh, no what, um, do you feel like when mental health wants to hire people, are you in the driver's seat or is um, county human resources in the driver's seat? It's a partnership. We have specialty needs for our clinicians, so we do need clinicians that have lived experience, yeah. and so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a joint collaboration on how we do that. We've been able to have our equity um, team be in interviews, serve on interview panels. Okay. We developed some equity questions on that are mandated that are now on our uh, interview um, questionnaire, 
which talks about equity and lived experience. And so we've been able to partner with HR in that way. Um, and also to be able to provide feedback to our hiring managers on what they're looking for and thinking about how we can um, look at minimum qualifications and what, what language needs to be um, um, not changed, but like maybe thought about a little bit more. So for example, we have um, a 2930, which is a behavioral health clinician um, that does not need to necessarily have a license, but they need to be registered. So our efforts with that is to hire some of those graduates who are, are registered and help them get into their licensing for the next classification. So that's what we've been partnering with HR on and our Office okay. of Health. I just want to, I think when we're trying to make real changes like this, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's an issue when, you know, HR needs to serve our departments, not right. the other, not you shouldn't have to be doing a million things to hire who you want to hire or who you need to hire. So right. um, that's just something maybe we could make a recommendation, looking at making recommendations in the future. Because mm -hmm. um, that can happen, right? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. you don't, yeah. Yeah, and I think you wanted to come up and talk about the partnership with HR. And like I said, we, we are a small section of DPH. So again, we, we, are a, we were able to part, pilot a lot of great things okay. out of the recommendations from the racial equity action plan that we had to put together. Okay, so, that's I'll, great. I'll pass it on. If Wonderful. If, if and pilots I, are a great. And you didn't have any um, additional questions for Director Brown? Or? No. Okay. So um, uh, just thank you so much. Yeah. Just on this topic specifically of, you know, hiring, recruitment, pay, promotions, retention, um, you know, Director Carol Eisen, who's the head of the Department of Human Resources for the whole city and county, um, she'll tell you that 90% of HR in the city and county actually happens in departments. So departments like DPH, you know, um, the what, MTA, what we call the big six, the ones with the biggest budgets, they actually have their own dedicated human resources teams that support them. And then the hiring managers are everyday staff, supervisors who are looking to hire people and then they're supported directly by HR analysts, either from their department or for the smaller departments, maybe from central DHR. And so this is where, you know, 50 departments, I would say hundreds, probably thousands of hiring managers. Um, the classifications are the same because, you know, the civil service code, DHR has standardized those. Um, but things like the questions we ask folks, the qualifications for sitting on a panel, the way we evaluate people's responses, the desirable qualifications, which Jessica talked about beyond the, the, the minimum qualifications which are in the law, those are all things that are up to the discretion of department heads, um, department HR teams, and even the hiring managers. And that's where, um, you know, it's been really great that BHS has really pioneered so many of these practices that we're looking to expand to other departments in these so cohorts. great. Thank you. Thank you for that work, BHS. You're going to have a huge impact, it sounds like. Thank you so much, and I believe Vice Chair D'Antonio, you had additional questions. Thank you. Oh, just um, for Chief Bush, yeah. Um, just could you give us an update on what's happening with the uh, trans-focused services with the closure of St. James Infirmary? So I know that there is a, a intermediary organization coming in before community health can come in, and so I know that they're help, helping with that transition. I forget specifically which organization is doing that work, but I think we expect the full-time provider to be on within the next two months. 
Okay. All right. So we haven't had any service interruptions or for the trans community in their housing or not as far as I know, but let navigation. me get back to you on that. Okay. That there was some kind of flags that came up. And so I want to make sure I have a little bit more information before I respond. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. To being Yeah, I have a couple of questions. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um as far as the flex pool vouchers, um, how are those being targeted? And like what like what's the allocation of the hundred and twelve vouchers do you know as far as like subpopulations or how I, they're I, being allocated i mean i know through coordinated entry but yeah so i don't know specifically around uh the population specificity with respect to like how many vouchers are going to this community versus others mm -hmm. but i do know that in the past we've had had to use um regions as a proxy for race just to okay. get around kind of the prop 209 uh challenges and so i think as as, as evidenced by the emergency housing voucher program that went down in 2022 led by Cynthia Nagender and her team and others people who I'm probably missing out on apologies um, we were able to like prioritize district 10 right and so even though it wasn't a specific racial specificity there was a way to use a uh, region as a proxy for race to ensure that most of the people who were receiving those vouchers were also people of color or black so um, more on that I, I we're still uh, building how we collaborate intentionally with other divisions. So if there's specific uh, questions on the housing front okay. that I may Mine have not. Mine are pretty specific. Yeah, I'll so just shout them out and then you can give a response to Laura and Ivy and they'll make it public. Great. That would be helpful. And okay. then I can make sure that the notes reflect when I so do my outreach. My other question was around um, the building that's TG and CIA for um, Tay. Like when was that expected to come online? Uh, I think the... Gosh, the RFP or RFQ is coming out uh, fairly soon. But again, I think this is something that I don't, the equity office doesn't technically lead that division of work. So oh. I have to get back to you on that. Yeah. And then like if there's a building that's already identified, does any, if anybody knows. There is, but due to the protections of this classification, we're trying that not to broadcast that, that address just yet. Um, but yes. But there, there is one. There okay, is a building that's, that's already kind of, yes, okay. safeguarded for that. And yes. then my last question is around coordinated entry and how you were talking about the assessments being designed for specific access points and maybe not one size fits all for each access point. I just want to make sure I understood that correctly and what is that process looking like? Is that something that was part of the coordinated entry like working group or is that something new that you guys are working on? Yeah, so I may have misspoke. The the assessment is still going to be a universal assessment, but <laughs> reference to how the criteria is scored, I think that is where we're thinking around specific, like, um, uplifting certain maybe lived experiences or other demographic factors to support the the increase in, in score of def, various you know uh, pe people or clients that are taking it we can't we can't uh, have differentiated coordinated entry assessments That's at each site thing. yeah so yeah. it would still be i think what they're thinking about is how do we ensure that the scoring and the baseline of that also reflects some other needs that are not being met by the assessment as it currently stands yeah or maybe even like different thresholds Right. Um, and something that I've been hearing too is there's a request for more questions around like the LGBTQ community. Yes. And like how like they became homeless, like how their experiences homelessness. That's true. Assessment. I, exactly. And I think another thing that may not be so obvious is the assessor, right? When someone of a different ethnicity is is giving the assessment and someone who might be of color or of a different marginalized community is taking that assessment there's still an area of interpersonal dynamics where judgment can be at play and so i think they're also thinking through how do we intentionally ensure that whoever is providing the assessment is probably best matched 
uh, for the client who may be taking that. So there's a little bit more safety and a, maybe of a guard down of how um, they're, they're providing their responses, right? Because I think it still could be very traumatizing if you're having to share your medical history, your mental health history, so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And then thinking too about um, the capacity of the access points to do all these assessments, like the treatment of the case managers, like what is their pay? Are they close to home? Like, exactly. are they economically homeless? Exactly. Like, how are they showing up to work every day? I think that's also really important. Absolutely. Um, those were my three questions. Thank right. you. No problem. And I did have a question for Sarah. Yes, I had a question for uh, you as well, uh, Sarah. So thank you so much. Oh, um, I think. Um, oh, Member Walton. Member Walton. Oh. Hi. Sorry Good to that. see you, Mr. Bush. Um, very interested in the parts of your plan related to capacity building, contracting, um, and the BIPOC equity fund. I realize those, it sounds like those awards are coming. Yes, but we literally you, just finalized. Which uh, is great. Yes. Um, but what I'd love to hear is what are some of the things that you hope this funding focuses on or your equity efforts to build up the providers who represent the people um, that, you're, that the department is trying to serve. Yeah, so a lot of the applicants have spoke to just like not having the right infrastructure in place uh, to kind of enhance their work streams, right? Whether that be um, recruiting a board, um, having you know trainings off the bat ready to go to then fully fledge some of their programming. And so I think anything that can be startup that can also then have a gradual release model where they're able to support that work independently of these one-time funds. And I think that's the biggest hurdle, is that when it comes to capacity building, as I've been learning in my you know two years at HSH, that if it's not ongoing funding, then it's very hard to get certain things sustained to independence, and yet startup costs can really be um, a factor, right, to help support that. And so some folks have started, spoke about just kind of the awareness building around philanthropy and what does it mean to learn how to fundraise. Maybe they need to start up costs for um, a certain position that then, then can re, um, redirect other funding streams to ensure that they have that ind independence there. And so I would caution what I would want, because I just want them to be served in ongoing funding, right? Um, but I think that the idea here is that for whatever the um, initial building block of that work stream can be, we provide that foundational building block, and then they're able to better get coached and supported by us to gain independence with that. Great. Thank you. I'd, I think we'd be very interested in knowing when those awards are announced what they are. And, yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, folks. Thank you so much. All right, so I believe um, I had a question um, for Director Singh. Um, so my question in terms of like, Prop 209 and just the problems that it presents with a lot of this work, um, what is sort of the, the city's thinking around sort of um, frameworks that we can use to really serve who we know needs to be served and knowing the challenge of um, a Prop 209. I know there was efforts with Prop 16 to repeal it and those failed. And so just wondering if there's any thoughts in terms of the future for uh, getting up against those, that barrier. I will say at this point, so Proposition 209 prevents us from discriminating on the basis of race in hiring and contracting. Um, and that's like what some folks might consider positive discrimination, like direct affirmative action as well as you know, negative discrimination. Um, 
And then so we've been working with the city attorney's office actually. Um, they have a new team within their office that is purely to centralize their guidance on Prop 209 and make sure that all the deputy city attorneys are giving different departments the same kind of guidance on it. Um, and where we are at this point is, you know, our lives are so intersectional. Um, and I think, you know, Jessica and Anthony did a great job of talking to that so that there are aspects of our identity that, you know, absolutely shape our experiences, especially with homelessness. Um, and the, like, as a result of that, um, when we look at things like income, neighborhood, et cetera, our cities are so segregated that there are so many measures that we can use to serve these populations directly um, without necessarily having to specify race in that way. I will say in our contracts right now, um, we are in our like grants and so on, we do say things like, um, you know, this initiative is targeted at you know, people who are black and are experiencing so on, um, as well as all other affected populations. And so the guidance has been, as long as the opportunity is open to everyone, the recruitment can be very focused. Um, so in terms of just language for a lot of these programs, I know I've seen like historically disadvantaged um, and other terms that are being used. Um, and it can even go more detailed than that, I think, is what the city attorney has been encouraging us to do. So we could look at specific income levels. We can look at specific illness levels. Uh, we can look at specific types of, like, um, housing tenure, um, educational outcomes. You know, we can ask for all those things. And we know those are deeply, deeply correlated with race and gender and sexual orientation in our society. Thank you. And I believe um, Vice Chair D'Antonio had a question as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I just am not too familiar. I don't know. Um, you mentioned something about zero-based budgets, and I don't understand that framework or what that is, so if you could just break it down for me like yeah. a five-year-old. Thank you. Um, and I first became familiar with this during the pandemic. Um, so in a typical budgeting year in most cities and also most companies, um, you know, they have their base budget. This is what it takes to pay our employees, our ongoing operations, the projects we have planned, and based on their financial forecasts, they'll say, oh, and we expect to have, you know, 10% more next year, and they'll figure out how to allocate that extra 10%, or they might say, you know, we're actually gonna have 10% less, and they're gonna figure out how to allocate that 10%, those 10% cuts, um, and they analyze the impacts of those. Mm -hmm. Zero-based budgeting says, um, let's start at zero. Let's look at all the spending we do and decide what, how much of that spending is actually getting us the impacts we want as an organization. Uh, so it doesn't take for granted any, yeah, any existing or ongoing operations. So in terms of what we did with departments, um, you know, a lot of them had adopted a tool that's been used by the Government Alliance for Racial Equity, um, which looks at that incremental request. It says, oh, if you're asking for, you know, 50,000 more for this project, what's the impact of that? Um, and talking with some of their CFOs um, and the racial equity leaders in departments, we were realizing folks actually need a clear picture of the entire department's budget and where that's going in terms of racial equity. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's what many of them helped lay out with the support of their accounting staff. 
That makes sense. Thank you. Um, I actually have one more question for you, though, too. Um, something we've talked about a lot, especially in the beginning of this committee, um, was around equity and services and contracting. And so if you could just speak more to that, especially around contracting, because I think this city is really hindered by our contracting and how we do it, and it just seems really archaic. So how are we going to make it not? This was really interesting. So the city has a um, what they call an LBE program, like local business enterprise, um, and one of the categories under that is you know certain ethnic groups. Um, if you're like Iranian and so on, and you're the owner and your business is based in SF, you can register in the LBE program. Um, and then when you submit a proposal for a city contract, um, then you get a certain amount of bonus points when they're evaluating you. Um, so you have to register to become an LBE. And what we were finding is that there were many businesses, um, you know, small businesses, local and otherwise, um, owned by people of color, um, that weren't actually registering to be LBEs. You know, they might not know about the process, might not have the resources to go through that process. And so they weren't even getting the bonus points. Um, so what we did with the controller's office is we said, actually, we need to look at the baseline we have right now for all city contracts, all the bidders and the, um, so what they have now is, this is a, this terminology is confusing. When you want to bid on a city contract, you have to register. So those are called bidders. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you submit all the paperwork to demonstrate that you're compliant with all the laws and you can actually fulfill city contract, then you're called a fully compliant supplier. So that very first step when you register to be a bidder, it wasn't asking for the demographic information of the owners of those companies at all. It wasn't asking about their race, their ethnicity. It wasn't asking about their gender or sexual orientation. So actually at a citywide level, we had no information about that. We only knew about the very small subset of people who had gone through the process of registering to be a local business enterprise. Um, so the controller's office, they had to go into their software and it's this legacy system. It has like multiple layers of software stacked right. on each other, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know you must be very familiar familiar with that. Um, and they added an entire interface um, where people so could enter their demographic information. So specifically their race, their ethnicity, their gender identity, and their sexual orientation. Um, it is optional, but it's designed to give folks a strong nudge to register. Where we are right now, though, is, you know, the question was, what if it's a big corporation with, you know, shareholders, et cetera? How do people answer? So right now, just as a test, um, the interface is directed at folks who are sole proprietors. So, you know, they own their business without any kind of business structure um, or they're a single member LLC um, or, you know, they only have a couple of owners for the LLC. So it's just a test. Um, it's been in place since I want to say June and we'll see in a few months like what the response rate has been like if we have to adjust the interface and so on. Thank you. That's super helpful. I, I had a couple follow-up questions. Because um, I think we see this, at least for us here, in the aspect of like consultants that have been hired to help us. So I want us to think about it within that framework. Like I think it's interesting to think about it with, about the small businesses, but within this committee, like I think cons the 
it's more so hiring consultants who get paid a lot of money with Prop C dollars, and we want to make sure that they're spent equitably and that the consultants we hire represent and look like the diversity of the community we serve. So also, how do we make that process more low barrier? Because I just don't think we get a lot of applicants. I don't think a lot of people know how to do it, and I think they struggle to do it. And so less so thinking about the C cores, more thinking about the small people. So but I don't know if you have like, I don't know if that was really a question, but it's just more of a comment about like I see a lot of challenges, and, but I'm glad that you guys are addressing um, how to track race and make sure that that's part of the process, but I think making it more low barrier, making, yeah, probably more user friendly, more like a better interface, um, yeah. I but, was, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it took me like several weeks to even understand the difference between signing up to be a bidder versus become a supplier, right? And we have found the same challenges um, within our department HRC and issuing grants um, and finding consultants. Uh, one thing that we are trying at our office is um, in the next few months, so what we've designed is instead of jumping straight to an RFP, um, we talked with all the departments about what kind of racial equity consultant needs they might have, and we've designed what we call an RFI, a request for information. So this is non-binding. Folks can like answer the questions we've asked them. They can tell us about the types of services that they provide, their expertise, their approach, their, their approximate rates. And then based on that, we're hoping to segment it into more specific requests for qualifications uh, where we can create a citywide pool that's open to all departments um, that's much more low barrier for consultants. See, I love that. Okay. That's super cool. Yeah, and I feel like it's important. Like, I hadn't heard about this, and we need to hear about this in these type of platforms so that the word gets out because there's a lot of people that don't know about it who could be offering services and who could be getting paid to help us do this work. So thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you again to all of our presenters for making yourself available, and thank you for all the work you do. It's really, really important work, and this committee is very much committed to this continuing to be one of our pillars um, for our decision-making. Um, so now I believe we're going to move um, to item five, which is our officer elections and liaison appointments. We do have to take public comment, and then we can. Oh, we didn't take it before for this item? Oh, okay. Let's do it. I know. Okay. Uh, so, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this agenda item in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide pub public comment over the phone, please call 415 -655 Enter access code 26640572213, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any over the phone public comments? For the records, there are no additional phone public comments. Okay, thank you so much. 
All right, with that, we're gonna move uh, to item five, which is our officer elections and liaison appointments. I thank you so much. Um, I believe folks got a chance to look at the liaison information sheet that was sent out um, by our team um, and just wanna open it up um, for any nominations. Really? <laughs> like, uh... The suspense. <laughs> so, um, Walton. Oh, wait, hold on. I okay. want to make a nomination. Go for it. I would like to nominate um, Scott Walton as the data, um, what's it called? Data officer. Awesome. Um, member Walton, do you accept? I'll second that. All right, wonderful. Um, just can I just hear a minute about what that role is now? <laughs> I have an idea. He's like, what member, am I signing up for? No, member Friedenbach gave me some history of what it was uh, originally conceived to be, but I understand there are changes now that we have so much input from data from departments. So is it a, more of a coordination role? So I'm going to let um, I'm going to let Laura take this question. Because Laura works closely yeah. with this role. We have yeah. had a few. So the last data officer was Julie Ledbetter, who um, left in May, I think. So it's been vacant. During the last fiscal year, um, our policy analyst, um, who also left in May, um, was <laughs> working a lot on our needs assessment. And so she was engaging Julie and some other members were invited as well at different points um, in kind of discussion of the data, understanding of the data in the needs assessment throughout its development. So it kind of, uh, you know, every every couple months or so would host a meeting to kind of, here's the progress so far and, and kind of understand what's going on in the needs assessment. So that was a big deliverable from last year that was kind of the focus of the data work. Um, there have also been um, sort of other types of data sort of um, that have come up in the past or other sort of ways um, we have brought data to this committee or the departments have. Um, and so uh, we understand it as a role that we would sort of, as we are doing data projects, like the, uh, like the um, needs assessment or other data projects, um, we would convene uh, regular meetings with the data officer and other members who are interested in those um, to to discuss and allow you to be able to bring that kind of, kind of expertise to the group um, for full discussion. And the next needs assessment is due? It's not for a while, um, but it's every three years. So we just published officially in November, in November last year or December last year, the committee approved it. So it's mm -hmm. sort of a year old. I think we probably would wait until we hire another staff person to <laughs> run that process, um, which hopefully will be soon. But I don't think we'll wait. I wouldn't think we would wait three years, but maybe next year in the coming year, we would probably reinitiate the needs assessment re-up. So thank you. Yes, I would accept that nomination. Oh. We still need to vote, but definitely thank you for well, accepting. Yes, you accept it. Awesome. And, All right. Um, I'd like to nominate Bonnie Preston as the liaison for diversion and prevention. Awesome. Do you accept? Um, I accept the nomination. Wonderful. And All I right, can so second. Have, and there's a second. Um, is there any additional nominations? Um, we also have our officer roles. Um, I'm currently serving as chair, and then. Julia is vice chair. So uh, are we doing You're those? not up yet. So it's oh. technically November, which we don't have a regular meeting. So it has to be a regular meeting for the officers. I think 
with the data officer, it's different because it's a vacant seat, and so we're filling Julie's Julie's term. Okay. Uh, technically, like but so that's and fine. But Bonnie's thing. And yeah. uh, Nina's. Okay. Yeah. But okay, those so are those liaisons. Are the, so so liaisons that's the only officer that's yeah. up right now. Okay. Liaisons versus officers. So the officer in the bylaws is sort of has a different uh, term, okay. um, where the liaisons are more appointment based, so okay. they can be flexible. So feel, you know, you could appoint liaisons at any point, and officers. I think you're filling a vacant term at this point, and then the chair and vice chair will technically be the next regular meeting, which would be in January. Okay. So we, wonderful. That's when we lasted it. Uh, and then I also just want to open up so. Um, um, we have the community impact officer the, role as well, and then also housing. Um, I know we don't have a full board here right now, and I do want to announce um, um, member uh, Catalano, um, who was serving on the committee, um, representing the controller's office, as well as our prevention uh, liaison, has unfortunately stepped down from the board. Um, she will be moving out of the country, so will not be able to serve. Um, but um, I believe we're good, so any... You're not going to leave your role, right? Just to no, I'm good. Good. Thank you. All right, I'm so good in good. shelter. I'm happy to move around to wherever I'm needed, but I'm, yeah. You're, okay. Serve at everybody's pleasure. Yeah. Sweet. All right. So I think we need to take them one at a time, each um, liaison, and can we do it as a package? All right. So let's do a roll call vote, and this uh, is the vote on um, Member Preston and Mem Member Preston as our new prevention and diversion liaison. Um, I, we do need public comment actually on this. And then also um, Member Walton as our data officer. So we'll take public comment and then take it to a vote. Okay, so members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415 Six five five zero 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 one. Enter access code two six six four zero five seven two two one three. Then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments over the phone? For the records, there are no public phone comments. Okay, thank you so much. Now we'll go to roll call. Vice Chair D'Antonio. Yes. Member Friedenbach. Yes. Member Preston. Yes. Member Walton. Yes. Chair Williams. Yes. Wonderful. So thank Yay. you for your service. Awesome. <laughs> That's fun. very exciting. All right, so we are at that time um, for future agenda items, and I do want to bring up the, the news that we just received that um, due to the APEC conference, um, the city will not be holding any public meetings in November, so I just want to give our staff a chance to kind of update us on this and do some planning around um, uh, the Tay item in particular, what are we looking yeah. at in our retreat has yeah. been canceled as well. So basically yeah. our retreat is canceled mostly. It's the port canceled our hold on their room that we were going to be off site. And then when we tried mm -hmm. to find a room in city hall that week, they said they weren't going to allow us to have a city hall meeting that week. So huh. we just, um, uh, the, uh, plan I think the alternate plan we do have us we have our next meeting is a special meeting on December 8th 
So the plan would be to have that meeting include the TAY conversation as well as the revenue update that was planned for uh, the retreat as well. As, and uh, the third item would be the annual report, which will be published that day. Um, and so those would be the December items uh, proposed. Um, and we can. We had also planned to have a, a discussion with Cynthia Najendra on strategic plan, um, what, what is happening there. We could tentatively push that to January. We're also still working with housing authority on coming. They were, they were not able to come today, but they are tentative for January okay. um, based on scheduling still. So we're kind of working through some scheduling details there. Um, but that would be um, the kind of adjustment. I think the thing we haven't figured out what to adjust or how to adjust is the conversation with the other committee. We were working, we had tentative agreement, although we didn't have specific names yet. Um, we're still working on getting names of the house, uh, homeless, co homeless Oversight Commission and the Mental Health SF IWG members. You're planning a dialogue to talk about priorities and coordination um, at the retreat. Um, so we would need to find either, once we start getting into February, you start getting into budget discussion. So it's either there's a revenue or there's a special meeting option or kind of some adjustment can, there. If it's a location issue, can we have it at Southeast Community Center, the retreat as planned? So it's out of the apex zone? Um, we do not have, uh, I can't replan this retreat um, at that um, timing. So. Um, I have a question related to the retreat. Um, for, for us with day jobs, <laughs> December is often a slow month. So could we look at trying to find a date in December that's not drifting too close to the holidays? Um, just an idea. To have a second special meeting in December? To have a special meeting, yeah. A special retreat. Well, I mean, the, the retreat. retreat, yeah. So, so we have a special Dispo? meeting December eighth. Just that's already confirmed in the calendar. That's a that's sort of a but that's two hour. Got a lot of business. You have that business, yes. Yeah, um, but in terms of like meeting as a retreat, could we look at some dates around that? Yeah, that works for me. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, I mean, there's even the possibility. Um, is there a way to kind of maybe bring that the date, have it on the same? Date. I don't know if that logistically would make it easier or Everyone like that's not check. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, on the eighth. Have to all agree. That like have like a business meeting and then go into our retreat just so. Well, the retreat would still be public. We would need to find a date. I mean, it would still be public, but I'm just yeah. saying just so you don't have to do two. How many hours for the retreat? We were looking at what was that? Three and a half to four. So, so four, and then this meeting is. Done that in the beginning. That I, was a lot. Six <laughs> hours. So it would basically have to be the entire eight. Yeah. One option is we could find, and we didn't have, we weren't able to get quorum on the 8th for the longer, for the morning, so it's only in the afternoon, and so um, we have the two-hour meeting in the afternoon on the 8th. Oh, we, can, we can look at other dates, potentially. I think if we consolidate some of the content into other meetings, um, we can see what other content remains and how much of it there is. So, for example, if on the 8th we are already talking about the TAY item um, and uh, the budget or the revenue update from our budget office, those were a couple items that were planned for November retreat. So that sort of takes some of that time. 
um, if we, so the remaining items are the strategic plan and that conversation with um, the other committees. Um, and so if. I had a question, um, like could we just push the other items besides the Tay item to other dates? Because I feel like the Tay item is urgent and that could get, free us up to just have our retreat business in that same time frame. Because. Um, no, not in two hours, but just expand on, like, we just that take care of our business with the vote, the Tay vote, and then go into the retreat. We don't have to check our calendars on the 8th. Just yeah. We could do the whole afternoon. It would be, so it would be two to five is what you're saying? So that would be three hours? Yeah, because the vote, I don't, I imagine it won't take long for the vote, because um, I know folks are organizing, and there's lots of, that's already happening on that front, so we I'm just saying, just so folks don't have to do an additional date, additional logistics for the rooms and all the things, that we can do the vote for Tay and then have our retreat on that same day, knowing that we're going to already be In there. the afternoon. So yeah, in the afternoon. So maybe a proposed time of 2 to 6, and oh, then that would give us... We can't stay past uh, oh, past 5. five. We were um, starting okay. at what time on the 8th? 2. It was for 2 o'clock? So we could do two. We could ask to see if the room is, I think the room was probably available till 5, um, but we can't stay past 5 um, in City Hall. It's their building rules, so we're here to, on the 8th. And isn't it critical to see if the other key presenters are available that same day? We um, would, I mean, we, I feel fine about the department pre presenters because we already sort of typically, um, have them here um, and we've already communicated that there is some content on that day so um, that they would want to be present for so this um, it would be if you wanted to have the discussion with the other committees and com uh, the IWG and the homeless oversight we would have to see if they're <laughs> what their availability is that day we were still pending seeing who which people were going to be available mm -hmm. for November anyway so it's still the same conversation and the, uh, just another thought, too, on that coordination discussion, could that be something that we would ask them to put onto their, one of their committee meetings and, you know, we be a guest? Um, it's coordination between three separate entities, so um, I'm not trying to fight the 8th. If we can do it all on the 8th, that's great, but I just am looking for as much flexibility because I think the coordination is the key is a key component. yeah I mean so maybe we can just look into potential for two to five mm -hmm. December 8th that's what we yeah we have that from the Friday two to four afternoon. Mm -hmm. yeah two to five just to have the retreat and then also have the vote on Tay if we can make it happen that'd be great because going into the next weeks it's going to get real squirrely with holidays and everyone going out at myself yeah, yeah. that's yeah, why we landed on the eighth because that was the only day all of you actually said that you could possibly make it yeah so. <laughs> yeah because it well we're looking at f i mean from what i was hearing laura saying we were looking at five different items um i don't think we're going to be able to do all five in three hours that's why i said just the tay vote and then yeah but the tay vote and then the other two that she mentioned i think are really important which is the update on the money and the um what you call it I think the timing will work if we don't do the HSH strategic planning. If we push that till January, the presentation on the current state of the strategic plan and the goals and um, et cetera, the, um, that element of the presentation and discussion could be pushed to January. And then I think that um, the other items would fit within the time frame. The mental health SF. So we're, we're still outstanding on the housing authority, right? That we are, plan we are working with them we're on timing. So we're looking at January. For that would be one. January. So it would be... Okay. So it would be, and the update on the fund. 
On the fund and the other one, the, um, there was three that Laura mentioned. The annual report. The what? We have the annual report. Oh, the annual oh. report, yeah. Could, um, okay. for the eighth, could we consider starting at one? Because I, I like the idea of having a strategic planning discussion before January, you know, before the start <coughs> of the year, because it gives us more, I think the idea of the retreat was also to give us time to kind of digest um, the strategic plan and, uh, you know, us as a committee, what is our str strategy? Um, I, I kind of like doing that before the end of the year. Oh, you have I a have commitment, commitment until two. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, well, I could. Okay. I, yeah, no, no, no. Try. It's fine. Yeah, we, we can got, do some of this planning and scheduling offline to kind of, yeah. we need to confirm the room yeah. as well, but we yeah. can kind of do some options on uh, online technically. Um, so we can kind of coordinate, but it sounds like there's energy around trying to find more space on that Friday the 8th time right. to add in a few of the retreat. <laughs> Uh, presentations um, prioritizing the committee discussions as well as the other items that were um, the the TAE housing and the um, revenue outlook great awesome so thank you so I think our staff need to go back and kind of like workshop yeah. it yeah. and figure it out this but, is a new development yeah. with the cancellation of November meeting yesterday yeah. in November and yeah yeah so I think yeah just if we can make it happen then based on folks availability I think that's probably the best option so i know we're at time it's 11:35, um and i don't know if we have additional public comment on future agenda items um all right let's see if we have public comment so members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person please line up at the podium now each person will have two minutes to speak for the records there are no in-person public comments members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone Please call 415-655-0001, enter access code 2664-057-2213, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? For the records, we have no public comments over the phone. Thank you so much, and thank you to our staff for all your work. Um, at this time, we're at adjournment. Is there a motion to adjourn? Motion to adjourn. All right. A second. All right, so it's been moved by Member Walton, seconded by Member Preston. Um, and no discussion. We'll just go to vote. Vice Chair D'Antonio? Yes. Member Friedenbach? Yes. Member Preston? Yes. Member Walton? Yes. Chair Williams? Yes. So we're adjourned at 11.36 a.m. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.